0: Hello and welcome back. For to today's podcast, we're joined by Hazel Ryan from the Wildwood Trust down in Kent, who's explaining to us the process of small mammal reintroductions focusing on hazel dormice. She describes why this species is so important to ecosystems and what her and her team have been doing about it. And if you like this episode and like to follow more on this project, please follow the links in the description. And if you'd like to support us, you can make a donation at restoreourplanet.org or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Enjoy the conversation. Hello and welcome back to Restore Planet podcast with me, your host, Jack Cole. So today I'm joined by Hazel Ryan, who is talking to us down from uh, from Kent, who tells us a little bit about sort of small mammal introductions. So Hazel, uh, welcome. And uh, yeah, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Fantastic. So Hazel, just to kick things off, you mind tell us a little bit about your background and what it is that you do?
1: So I'm the senior conservation officer at the Wildwood Trust. Um, Wildwood is a charity for British native species. Um, And our main aims are uh, restoring habitats and wildlife uh, back to where it used to be, and also uh, raising awareness as well. So part of my job is managing captive breeding programs, species that we reintroduce, but the other part is actually education and training. So I actually train people in how to handle animals, how to identify animals, um, to help them with their, their work surveying and monitoring in the wild.
0: Fantastic. Okay, so uh, we might kick things off a little bit by talking about dormice and what's happened to them, why they're important and why it's necessary to to bring them back.
1: Yes, yeah, so we only have one native species of dormice, the hazel dormouse in the UK. And since the year 2000, it's declined by about 50%. Um, the main reasons for the decline are climate change and habitat loss and habitat changes. So things like um, loss of hedgerows. Um, our woodlands getting smaller fragmentation of habitats so road and railways um, chopping up woodlands and making them smaller because there are species that live at a very low density and so they need quite large areas of woodland we think they need a minimum of maybe 20 hectares of woodland which in the past would have been easy to find but today um it, many of our woodlands are much smaller than this um and then the, the other issue climate change is because they're a very weather sensitive species, so they need a nice, warm, dry summer and um, a quite a cool, constantly cold winter because they hibernate. And we're finding with climate change, our summers are getting wetter, which is not good for dormice because their fur is not particularly waterproof. And being um, such a small animal, their fur gets waterlogged really easily um, and they can um, lose heat very, very rapidly. Um, and the smaller you are, the, the more heat you lose from your body. Um, and so they can get caught out in, in, in bad weather. So so rainy weather and cold weather in the summer is not good for them. Um, and then in the winter, they hibernate. So we have to have this nice constant cold winter because if it gets warm, they wake up early and they may wake up before there's any food available for them to feed on.
0: All right. OK. And what uh, what influence do they have in the and their habitats and sort of you know, part of the ecosystem?
1: So so an important part of our woodland biodiversity and they're actually an indicator species of a healthy habitat so they can show that a woodland is very diverse and, and often ancient woodland the sort of habitat they're in because they require a quite a range of food throughout the year. Um, they have a, a digestive system that that's quite primitive so they can't digest leaves and bark from trees or grass so they have to have flowers fruits and nuts to feed on and insects um and so to have a succession of those throughout the the breeding season into the autumn they need a woodland that's got a nice range of different shrubs and trees or, or a very diverse hedgerow so having dormice there means you've got a really healthy habitat um and you know every species plays a role in the sort of food chain as well so they're actually um feeding on insects but they're also being fed on by predators and they could be pollinating our plants as well because they feed on pollen and nectar from flowers so they could play a role there that we don't really know about yet.
0: All right fantastic and what's their lifespan?
1: They are very long-lived so um, in the wild in the UK they've been recorded up to five years but I suspect they probably live longer in Europe six years. But in captivity, we've actually kept them alive for nine years, which is quite incredible. Um, and the reason is because they are what we call a case strategist. So there's, there's different types of animals and plants in the world. The case strategists are the very slow breeding animals. So dormice only have one litter of young per year. And, um, well, rarely, I mean, sometimes rarely they have, have a second litter, but generally we think of them having one smaller litter of four or five young. Um, but they live a long time, but they don't breed until they're in their sort of second year. Um, whereas other species I work with, such as water voles, are what we call an R strategist, and they're the sort of live fast, die young animals. So they breed like every three weeks, as soon as they've given birth to one litter, they're pregnant again and having another one. Um, but then they, they only live for maybe a year or two uh, because they're <laughs> exhausted by then. Um, so yeah, so they're very, very, very different, but it makes them vulnerable because they have this slower breeding. It means that anything that affects their habitat um could could really affect their population
0: oh, rock and roll and waterfalls. okay, so we're talking about uh the reintroductions. how is it that you go about sort of sourcing uh individuals for for breeding for you know to have a diverse gene pool how does that how does that uh process so
1: all uh, mice are actually legally protected. under um, the UK Habitats Regulations and also the UK Law, the Wildlife and Countryside Act. So we can't just go and take dormice from the wild. So we are members of the Common Dormouse Captive Breeders Group and the group has a license to take a certain number of dormice every year from the wild should we need them for the breeding programme. Um, uh, Where we can, we try to source them from animals that have already come into captivity for one reason or another. So sometimes they're brought into rescue centres, for example, someone's cat finds a nest of babies um, and brings them in or somebody trimming a hedge cuts through a nest the mother runs off the babies are left behind um, and need to be hand raised Um, or animals get injured or found Um, perhaps a cat catches one and injures its tail but it's still okay to breed with so animals like that come into our breeding program Um, and it's really important to have of our diversity of genetics for the breeding program so my colleague Suzanne at Wildwood she actually manages the stud book there's a national stud book for dormice and she keeps records of all the animals so we we know exactly where each animal has come from um, and its bloodline and then that helps us when we pair animals up to make sure they're not inbred um, and, and what we ideally need to do is source new bloodlines every year or two um, to, to make our captive population more diverse.
0: Okay, and what's the site like for breeding? How does it put together? How does it work? What's uh, So do you bring them in the little beds? So, like what's, uh, the, what's the little sort of temperature? What do you feed them? What's the process?
1: <laughs> so being a wild animal, we try to keep the conditions as near as, as the world as possible. So we have large outdoor enclosures, six foot by six foot of cubes. And in those enclosures, we put lots of branches that we collect from, from our woodland. And they've got native trees with leaves and insects on, uh, a few potted plants as well. Um, and that gives them lots of things to climb on, but they can also use those for foraging for insects. And then we have nest boxes and these are little wooden boxes, a bit like a bird box, but they have a hole in the back instead of the front. And the dormice use these by climbing up a sort of tree or a, or a piece of wood behind and going in through the hole. And it's important that these are the same as the ones that we then use at the reintroduction site so that they recognise them. Because this is this is the type of box that we use for monitoring dormice in the wild um, at, at other sites because it's a good way of finding them without having to disturb their natural nest they will nest in those boxes um, and then we we feed them on um, a range of, sort of seed mixes and fruit and then we try to supplement that with native fruit and flowers that's in season the sort of things that they would find naturally so in the spring we pick hawthorn flowers and put those in there this time of year it's blackberries they absolutely love blackberries and wild plums Um, a bit later it will be chestnuts and hazelnuts Um, and we supplement them with mealworms as well because that's similar to the caterpillars that they would be feeding on in the wild Um, temperature is really they have the natural temperature so they're in a woodland setting so it's very similar temperature that they would be in a wild um, but if an animal needs um, attention if it's sick or it's being hand raised then we also have some indoor facilities where we have a large aquaria and we put the dormice in those for a short length of time for example if we have a new animal that comes in we have to put it into quarantine before it can go into our, our captive breeding group in case it has any diseases um, so it has to have an isolation period of 30 days before it can actually go out and join the other dormice. So that's when we have the indoor facilities set up as, as a quarantine.
0: What's the general uh, timeframe? So how long does this process take and then what sort of time or the year do you look to, to uh, release them?
1: Okay, so um, we pair up for the dormice in the spring. So, so they come out of hibernation in around April, May time, depending on the weather. And We put pairs together, so a male and a female. And then during the summer, we will check them periodically to see if they produce any young. Um, and then if they have, we monitor those young. Um, sometimes in captivity, they produce two litters, which is great. Um, and so we would separate the first litter and we move those into a separate cage so that the mother then can concentrate on the second litter. But we also move the father with them so that he can carry on teaching the young what to do. Because in, they're, they're actually quite sort of slow developing young. Um, they don't open their eyes until they're about 18 days old, whereas if you compare them to something like a harvest mouse, which is a much smaller animal um, and faster breeding, they're actually independent of the mother by 14 days old. So dormice are a bit slow. And we know in the wild they can stay with the parents, one of the parents, for up to two or three months, just learning what to do. So they learn how to travel around the woodland, where to find different fruits and flowers, how to cross gaps in the woodland because they don't like coming down to the ground. So they cross through the woodland canopy or along hedgerows. So, so so, we always leave an adult with them to actually teach them those skills, some of those skills in the cage. Um, and then, um, so they breed throughout the summer. And then in the autumn, they will go into hibernation. So we have a sort of post-breeding census where we go through all the cages in September, early September. So we'll be doing it very soon. Um, and they, we we check to see what weight they are. So we give them a good health check. Um, are they heavy enough to go into hibernation because there's a sort of minimum weight they need to be to make sure that they survive the hibernation period. Uh, we check them to make sure there's no parasites or anything that could affect them during the winter. So no fleas or mites or anything like that, no health problems. We check their teeth because they can get overgrown teeth as well to make sure their teeth are okay. So all sorts of things that we look at. And then we prepare their cages for the winter. So that means bringing in extra sort of compost and leaves. We lay that on the floor of the cages and that is where they hibernate because in the wild they come down from the trees in the autumn and they build a a very tightly woven nest on the ground. That's the only time they really are are on the ground. Um, And that nest is just at ground level or, or partly buried under the soil because it needs to be very humid they don't drink during hibernation so they need to stay damp but it also needs to be a nice constant temperature where they won't get killed by a frost um so it just sort of protects them from from, the, from any frosty conditions so yeah so um and then during the winter we still put food in the enclosures because you never know an animal might wake up for some reason if we have like a mild spell you know some winters are actually very mild these days and you get a sudden sudden heat wave um and they might wake up earlier, so there's always food available for them. Um, um, but apart from that, we're sort of hands off in the winter, and we, we leave them alone, let them sleep, um, and then we check them again in the spring to make sure they've all survived. Um, and as far as the release goes, they they actually we wake we sometimes have to wake them up a little bit early if they sort of sleep in in the spring. Um, we have to wake them up to get them ready for going for a release.
0: And if they wake up too early, do do they? Because you mentioned um, before that. In the wild they have been waking up too early because of the temperature and climate change and there isn't enough uh you know there's a lot of flowers, like you said, not enough food for them. Do you oh this is obviously in captivity now? Do you just give them a little bit of food and they go back to sleep? Sort of mid hibernation or is that is that what happens?
1: Yes, that's why we always have food available for them in their cages throughout the year. Um and then they yeah, they just feed on something like um it has to be like something obviously we don't have food that's in season so it might be something like apple um apple or blueberries or grapes or something like that um mm-hmm. and they have seeds like a sort of seed mix seed, nuts peanuts sunflower seeds that sort of thing and that that can give them a bit of of, of um, energy they can convert into fats because just before they go into hibernation they lay down a lot of brown fat so they can double their body weight they can go from sort of 15 to 20 grams up to 35 40 grams even um, and that's what they feed on during hibernation. So they gradually um, uh, absorb all that all that fat to keep them going. And so, yeah, so that's what we do. Um, and then they they we, we check to make sure they've gone back into hibernation. And we'll check their nest boxes. And if they're still in their nest boxes, often that can be a sign that there might be some sort of health problem or something wrong with the animal. Especially with sort of elderly animals, they can, um, that can be a little sign that there's something not quite right. And then we would get our vet to have a look at them. Um, and maybe take them indoors and keep them warm for the rest of the winter.
0: You mentioned in the world that the only time they come down to the ground is to hibernate. Was that Mm -hmm. that correct? But where do they spend the rest of the time? Are they sort of generally in trees, up in vegetation? Where are they?
1: Yeah, so their natural nest sites are in um, a woven nest, Um, and it's quite a distinctive nest. So the centre of the nest is sort of shredded tree bark or honeysuckle bark, and then there's this thicker layer of leaves around the outside, so it might be bright green hazel leaves, or might be chestnut leaves. And then that is usually in a hollow in a tree, so it could be in an old woodpecker hole, or in a hollow tree branch, or sometimes directly in a hedgerow. So in a, a very tightly sort of um, tight sort of pack of branches in in a hedge that would hold it tight. Those sorts of places. Um, so it's always off the ground. Um, and they just sleep inside that. And it's usually very, very well camouflaged. It's quite hard to find them actually in the mm. wild when there's leaves on the trees, you, you can't always locate them.
0: Right, so now moving on to sort of the release stage. Now, it's my understanding that you, this is how you, this is, excuse me, I can't speak. This is where you've been working with the People's Trust for Endangered Species, I forgot that correct?
1: That's right yes. so so the PTES as we shorten it to, um, they actually coordinate the releases themselves. so they actually find the reintroduction sites um, and then uh, they work with us to arrange for um, the site to be ready. They put up cages at the site. so we have soft release cages. so we don't just go and put the dormouse you know let it out from a cage and let it run off or put it in a nest box on the tree. It's very important that the dormouse um, has some time to adapt to its new environment. So they, the dormice actually get put into soft release cages where they have nest boxes and they have branches. It's a bit like a mini version of the breeding cages, um, and that's hung on a tree. And then volunteers um, from from the local area will go and feed the dormice every day for about ten days, um, and then a little hole is opened in the side of the cage for the dormouse to to come out um, and explore its surroundings, and then. Um, when it's ready, it will leave the cage completely. But but while it's doing that, food is still provided so that it never goes hungry.
0: All right. Okay. And then sort of moving on to sort of post release, how do you monitor? How do you know sort of how they're getting on? If they're sort of if they're healthy, if they're feeding? Is, is it just a case of just walking around and having a look, or are there certain little little indicators you can see within, within habitats?
1: So, so sadly, a lot of these sites are too far away from us in Kent for us to monitor them ourselves because we tend to release the dormice in counties where they become extinct or uh, the population is very endangered, so there's very few sites. So they tend to be in Northern counties like sort of Cumbria, Yorkshire, Nottinghamshire. Um, so um, there's a team of volunteers who get trained up to monitor them. So people who have their dormouse licenses, because you have to have a license to be able to check dormouse boxes and handle them. Um, and they will check every month and they have a set of nest boxes put up, the same as the ones in breeding cages. And these are hung on trees in a grid pattern throughout the woodland. And every month they will go and check in those nest boxes to see if there's a dormouse there. And all the dormice are microchipped. So they have a little tiny chip in them, a bit like if you take your dog or cat to the vets and get them chips, but a lot smaller. Um, and that's just in the back of the neck of the dormouse. And then the volunteers can scan those and and read the chip number to identify the actual individual and so they will they can then follow particular individuals see how they're doing they will weigh them um and they will record if they've got any young because that's important to know if they've bred that year Um, and any any young or born may may also be chipped as well or they may be marked in another way sometimes we we give them a little mark by clipping their fur so that, that we know who they are um but any animals without chips in is really good news because we know they're new animals which have been born at that site um yeah so, so they're checked um and every year this is what this monitoring goes on year after year so after, after this, the release has happened we don't just leave the dormice to get on with it um, it's really important to follow that up to make sure that it has been a success
0: Good. And speaking more broadly, how are things looking for the for dormice over the, the coming years in terms of numbers across the, across
1: the country? Yeah, well, so sadly, they have declined by 50% since the turn of the last century, um, despite conservation efforts, unfortunately. Uh, and we think a lot of this is due to climate change. But um, most of the reintroduction sites are actually doing well. There have been a few which, which haven't really worked. Um, especially ones that were released in the early days when we didn't know so much about what was important for dormice, and when we didn't have so many captive uh, bloodlines available so maybe the populations we released were not so diverse Um, but um, the more recent introductions have been doing a lot better and what we're finding is it's better to actually release in clusters so what we do is um, release at a site but we find other woodlands nearby and we have those lined up ready as well. So in the following year, we might release in the neighbouring woodland and the year after that, another woodland nearby. And the People's Trust for Endangered Species work with local landowners like farmers to make sure they improve the links between those woodlands, so hedgerows and tree lines, so that the dormice can disperse and then the three populations will meet up um, and you get a lot of mixing of bloodlines, which is really, really good. And we also do like little reinforcement releases now as well where we'll go back to a site and originally we may have released 40 dormice there and a few years later we go back and we add another 10 dormice but those 10 dormice are all 10 new bloodlines that we didn't have at the time the original release and so that injects um, a lot of new genes into that site to keep it going.
0: Great okay so modeling on Um, so yeah Hazel where can people find you uh, support your work see what's going on?
1: Um, So we're the Wildwood Trust, so you can find our website, www.wildwoodtrust.org. We also have a Facebook page and a Twitter account. Um, And you can also find out about the reintroduction sites on the People's Trust for Endangered Species website as well.
0: Fantastic. Hazel, thank you for your time.
1: Thank you.